Thank you, Joe, for your honesty, telling everyone that you had no idea where Habakkuk was. I think if a Bible college student doesn't know, I think that gives the rest of us a little bit of hope. <laughs> Habakkuk 3, verses 1 to 16. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we do echo the words of that song that was just played, even now with our hearts, that our desire as we gather is that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise, for even as we gather, we recognize that you alone are worthy of worship. Your name is worthy to be lifted up and to be praised. Heavenly Father, we, even as we consider ourselves and we look at our heart, we know that our sins are many. Heavenly Father, if we are honest with ourselves, we know that we are entirely undeserving. We know that we are sinners, that we all go our own way. And we recognize from Scripture that the penalty for our sin is death that we do not deserve the mercy or the grace of God. We deserve death. And yet we rejoice this morning as children of your mercy. We rejoice this morning that though our sins are many, your mercy is infinitely more. What hope there is for us this morning, Heavenly Father. There's hope for us not in our merit. There's hope for us not in anything that we could do or add to what Christ has done. There is hope for us in the cross of Christ alone. It's in that that we rejoice. It is in that that we hope, regardless of our circumstances. It is in that name of Jesus Christ alone, even this morning, that we come boldly before you in prayer. It is in that name that we open your word this morning, expecting that your spirit would work through your word in each and every one of our lives, that you would accomplish your purpose, that you would challenge us where we are weak, that you would change us for your glory this morning. Heavenly Father, be glorified. In the name of Jesus Christ alone, amen. Continuing our series through Habakkuk 3. Or through Habakkuk, we come to chapter 3 this morning. In 2007, I had the privilege of taking a trip with my grandfather uh, over to China. And we started up in Beijing and worked our way through the country, made our way down to Shanghai. The tour that we were on, that my grandparents were leading, had a few extra days. So they sent me back home. My part was done. They kept going. I had to get back. Uh, I don't remember what I had to get back for, um, but I had to get back. So I flew back from Shanghai to Newark, and then I was going to catch a connection in Newark and fly back to Greenville um, by myself. Uh, in 2007, I was a junior in high school. So I was a junior in high school flying back from Shanghai to Newark by myself. I got to Newark about 10 o'clock uh, that night. My plane was supposed to leave, I think it was at 11, it was before midnight, um, but my plane got canceled. And so I'm a junior in high school, 
My plane is canceled at 11 o'clock at night, and there's no other flights going out. And so here I am, stranded in Newark, by myself. Um, it was overwhelming. Uh, having just been overseas for the last 10 days, my cell phone didn't have much juice at the time. I didn't pack a charger. I wasn't planning on using it. Uh, and so I had, like, I think 5% battery on my cell phone. So I turned it on, and I called my parents, and I said, my plane was canceled. I'm stuck in Newark. I'll call you back in the morning. And then I turned my cell phone off to save battery. And so my parents are frantically trying to figure out what to do. You know, their high schooler is stuck in Newark all night long. So I ended up spending the night in the airport. Um, it, it was by the grace of God that I wasn't out on the streets. Uh, I actually didn't know what to do, so I was just following the crowd. And the crowd was walking out, so I was just following them. And a security guard grabbed, I don't know if I looked lost or what, but he grabbed me out of that crowd and he said, I just want you to know, if you go past this point, you won't be able to back in the airport all night. You'll be out in the streets. If you want to stay in the airport, you have to stay on this side of this line. And he caught me right before I crossed that line. <laughs> I don't know, it was the grace of God alone that kept me in that airport. So I spent the night at the airport uh, that night. But I felt completely powerless. My parents back in South Carolina, you, as you can imagine, they felt completely powerless. This is a situation that is completely out of my control, completely out of their control. You've probably been in situations like that throughout your life where, where you just, things work out or the way things fall or whatever happens, you just feel completely powerless. Your, your, your dependence just is made apparent. You are powerless. You have no real power over anything. And that was one of those situations in my life where my, my, my eyes were opened to that reality. As you come to Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk has come to that point. As Habakkuk has seen God's work on the world stage, as he, God tells him, I am raising up Babylon, I am doing a work that you would not believe if I told you. Habakkuk's eyes have been opened to God's work on the world stage. Habakkuk's eyes, Habakkuk's eyes have been opened to the Lord's justice and his wrath, to his responsibility to just live by faith. And Habakkuk now comes to chapter 3, and he, he realizes all of this. It's as if his eyes have been opened to his own powerlessness. I have no authority. I have no power. I have no say. I am powerless. And the question as you come to Habakkuk 3 is this, what hope is there for a powerless people? When your eyes are opened to your weakness, to the fact that you have no power, that you just, you just go with life what it throws at you, you have no power in reality over it. When your eyes are open to that reality, what hope is there for a powerless people? And the answer that we'll see in here in Habakkuk 3 this morning is that the only hope for a powerless people is a powerful God. Amen. The only hope for a powerless people is a powerful God. Because God is God. And because I am not God, I must rest in Him. As we work our way through this, We'll see the need to recognize God's work in the present, the need to remember God's work in the past, 
and the need to wait for God's work in the future. First thing we'd see this morning is the need to recognize God's work in the present. And we see that in the first two verses of Habakkuk here. In fact, even as you come to verse 1 of chapter 3, you see a change in perspective. There's a clear shift in Habakkuk's perspective. As, the, as verse, chapter 3 starts out, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. You might remember back to chapter 1, verse 1, it starts out, the book of Habakkuk starts out, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. And yet as you come to chapter 3, it's now moved from a burden to a prayer. Not only do we see what Habakkuk prophesies, but here in chapter 3, we have the privilege of seeing how Habakkuk, the prophet, reacts to what he has seen. This is his prayer in reaction to what God has said to him. He starts out in verse 2. Oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. I have heard your speech. In the NIV, it says, of your fame. In the ESV or in the NASB, it says, the report of you. Here in the New King James, it says, I've heard your speech. The idea is, I have heard of you. I have seen and I have heard. Specifically, he's probably referring back to God's plan for judgment. The specific things that God has told him in chapter 1, verses 5 to, to, to 11. He's told him of his plans to judge Judah. I will judge them using Babylon, this mighty nation that, that I have raised up. I am at work on the world. My, comp my purposes are being accomplished. But then in chapter 2, verse 2 to 20, he shows Habakkuk his plans to also judge Babylon. Habakkuk's eyes have been opened to God's plan, to God's working, not, not just here in Judah, but around the world. God is at work. And he's doing these great things. And as Habakkuk sees that, as he hears what God has said, he's afraid. I have heard your speech and was afraid. It's a holy fear. It's an awe as he stands before this God who's proclaimed these judgments. As he sees his sovereign work on a worldwide scale, he stands in awe, in holy fear of the Lord. I think a good way for us to understand fear of the Lord, or awe of the Lord, is to think maybe of the idea of the fear of heights. As you, as you get to the, the edge of whatever it is, a mountainside or the Grand Canyon or whatever this, this high thing is, when you say you have a fear of heights, what you really kind of mean is that you have a respect of those heights. You're in awe of the beauty that you see from the height. And yet you recognize that this height is not to be taken lightly. This is not something that I can just dance around or get as close to the edge as I want. There's a respect there. There's an awe. There's an aspect that makes you kind of stand back, to restrain, to hold back. 
That's where Habakkuk is as he stands before this holy and this just and this powerful God. He's in awe of what God can do. And he's in awe of God's power and of God's glory and of God's justice and of God's holiness. And he stands mouth aghast in awe of this holy God. And as you start here in chapter 3, that's a good place to start. In awe of God. In fact, Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So as Habakkuk responds to God, he starts with this holy respect and fear of who the Lord is. He recognizes his power. But from that, this is not a fear that that causes Habakkuk to run from the Lord. In fact, what we'll see is this is a fear and awe of God that causes Habakkuk to rest in the Lord and in his power. And you see that here, even as verse 2 goes on, I was afraid. And yet, being afraid, it's not that that fear drives Habakkuk away from God. That fear drives Habakkuk to cry out, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. The idea of that phrase, in the midst of the years, it's it's in our day. Revive your work in our day. In our day, make it known. It is a desperate desire to see God at work. Is this not the cry of many of our hearts? As we look around at at our nation and our world and the things that are going on, as we look at our own lives, do we not often cry, Lord, do a work. I long to see you do a work in our day, God. I read of what you've done in the past, and I long to see that in my day. You are a holy, you are an awe-inspiring, powerful God. Do a work in our day. I want to see you at work, Lord. I long to see you. In the midst of the years, make it known. It's interesting, and there's kind of an irony here. But this kind of echoes Habakkuk's original cry in verses 1 to 4. In verses 1 to 4, you might remember Habakkuk's concern is that wickedness is running the streets of Jerusalem. There is no justice. And he cries out, Lord, do a work. Let me see your justice. And yet, as you come to Habakkuk 3, this same prophet who cries for justice is still crying for the Lord to work, but there's a different flavor to it now. In fact, you see that as you go down to the end of verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. It's an honest prayer from this prophet's heart. Do a work. Heal our land. Work in your people. And yet, as you bring this judgment... Lord, remember mercy. When you are done working in your people, restore them. 
I think what you see here in Habakkuk is that justice and mercy are not at odds with one another. God is just and God is merciful. Sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile those two in our minds. How can you be just and merciful at the same time? But as Romans 3.26 says, God is both just and justifier of the one who trusts in him. He is a God who burns for justice and a God who loves mercy. A God of justice and mercy. Do your work. There's a recognition here that judgment is coming. And yet there's a hope in who this God is. You are a God who loves justice. And you are a God who loves mercy. In judgment, remember mercy. There's a, there's a tenderness to that cry. In judgment, in wrath, remember mercy. There's a trust in that. A trust that God will be just. And yet that his justice will not go overboard. That his justice will not wipe out his people. That God will remember his faithfulness. And that he will remember mercy. It's almost as if, as you come to these first two verses, Habakkuk has cried out to the Lord, and it's almost as if he's asked for something that he did not fully understand. It's almost as if he's asked God, bring your judgment. The Lord has shown him who he is. He's shown him the judgment that he is bringing. He has shown him his, his holiness and his power. It's as if Habakkuk now steps back and he goes, whoa. Wow. You are a just God. And your justice is terrible, but in your justice and your wrath, remember mercy. Care for your people. As you move on, here in the first two verses, Habakkuk recognizes God's work in the present. And I think we often need to do that, to pause and remember God's work in the present. We don't often see the full picture in the present. It's easy to look back and see what God has done, but we don't see the full picture in the present. And yet, as you see here, there's an aspect, as you look in the present at God's work, there's an aspect of, of trust there. I may not see the full picture. I know you're doing something. I'll trust you to remember mercy. So recognize God's work in the present. God is at work in the present. But then secondly, in verses 3 to 15, remember God's work in the past. It's as if at this point, Habakkuk turns back and he looks back. In verse 2, he said, I have heard your speech. I've heard of your fame. I've heard this report of you. I've heard what you said you're going to do. But I've also heard what you've done in the past. And that's where he returns here in verse 3. And in fact, it, it is Habakkuk's knowledge of God that informs and empowers his prayer to God here. This is who I know you to be. And so here in Habakkuk 3, verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk recounts many of God's past works. And he focuses specifically on the time of the Exodus and the conquest. Again, that's something you see pop up all throughout the Old Testament. The Exodus. God's work in the Exodus. Exodus. 
That's where Habakkuk looks here. He starts out in verse 3 uh, through 7. God's glory. God came from uh, Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Taman is an Edomite village. It's south of the Dead Sea. Mount uh, Paran, or the, it, it's a, uh, a mountain or a wilderness in the Sinai Peninsula. God came from that area. It's kind of looking back to the Exodus, a reminder of God who powerfully led his people out of that wilderness, up through this area, into the land. This powerful people, the God, led his powerless people out of the wilderness, into the land. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praises. His brightness was like the light. He had flashing ray, he had rays flashing from his hand, and his power was hidden. This harkens back to his glory is displayed as he leads his people in the Exodus fire, a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. It harkens back to at Mount Sinai as the Lord comes down and rests on that mountain. The quaking and the lights and the power and the glory on display. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praises. When his glory is seen, his name is praised. That's what Habakkuk's looking back to. He's looking back and remembering when God's glory was on full display. Before him, when pestilence, fever followed at his feet, that's the idea of divine punishment, specifically the plagues of Egypt. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. As the Lord rested on Sinai, and the earth quaked. These perpetual hills, these everlasting mountains. In scripture, mountains and oceans are often looked at as the foundations of the earth. They are immovable. They are powerful. And yet, as you see here in verse 6, even on in verse uh, 7, 8, and 9, this God, the God of this people, is the God of the mountains and of the oceans. When he comes and his presence is on display, even the mountains themselves quake. His ways are everlasting. God's sovereign plans and God's powerful work, nothing stands in, in, in his way. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. In verse 7, the tents of Kishon in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian trembled. These are nomadic tribes that were in the wilderness who trembled at what they see and hear. I mean, can you imagine as Israel's gathered around that mountain as the Lord rests on top of it, as there is lightnings and thunderings and the mountain shakes? Can you imagine being a nomadic tribe 10 miles away? Just what is going on over there? There is something great. That's the idea here. These these nomadic tribes in the area. They catch glimpses of what's going on. They hear rumors of what's going on. They see from a distance and they shake. This is a powerful God. This is a time when his glory is on full display. 
It goes on into verse 8, continuing with his power. The Lord here is displayed as a powerful warrior who is on the move. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? God's wrath poured out and judgment and power and its result is what we see here. This harkens back to when God split the Red Sea for his people. When he parted the Jordan River and led his people across. What you see here is that even nature feels the effects of God's power and judgment. His greatness. Even nature itself obeys him. As the mountains quake, the oceans part. Even the rivers cannot stay in its bed when the Lord commands it to move. God is on the move in defense of his people. Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. God's judgment is in display here. As he pulls back this arrow, it is like an arrow that is going forth with precision and with purpose. God's judgment is not just poured out randomly. It's not poured out in chaos. God's judgment comes with precision and purpose exactly where he wants it, how he wants it poured out. You divide the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the waters passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. Again, God's power over the mountains and the oceans. Reference here is probably back to Genesis 7 and the flood itself. Verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation and the light of your arrows. They went at the shining of your glittering spear. Joshua's victory over the Amorites at Gibeon in Joshua 10. Not just are the mountains and the oceans, these foundations of the earth, not just are they at the power of this God, but even the heavens, even the sun and the moon and the stars are at God's command, ready for his purposes, ready for judgment. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. He goes where he wishes and he does what he wants. He trampled the nations in anger, separating and judging the wicked from the righteous as wheat is separated from chaff. His judgment is sure. His judgment is precise. His judgment is purposeful. But why? Why does this awesome God, awesome in power, why does he do all this? Because of verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people. Why did God do all these great deeds? It was for the salvation of his people. God is at work for the good of his people. He's a faithful God, and the promises that he has made, he will keep. He defends his people because they are his people. He leads them because he has promised them a land and a people. He's a faithful God who keeps his promises. So he moves for the salvation of his people. Salvation with your anointed Israel's king, ultimately. Israel's ultimate king, Jesus Christ. Your anointed. 
He struck the head from the house of the wicked. Again, world empires that crumble at his command. Pharaoh in Exodus 15, the king of Assyria in Isaiah 10, and in the future, Babylon. That's, that's Habakkuk's hope. As he looks back and he looks at these nations who have risen up against God's people, these nations that God has judged, as he looks at Pharaoh's mighty fall, as he looks at Assyria's conquest, and he sees Babylon on the doorstep, he knows the same God that toppled Egypt, the same God that conquered Assyria, is the same God who's taking his people into, into uh, captivity, and he's the same God who will defeat Babylon and lead us out of captivity. He knows what he is doing. Verse 14, for, for, I'm going to pause there. Verse 14, you thrust, thrust through with his own arrows the heads of its villages. He came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. The rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. Here, referring back to the Exodus, the time when the Egyptians who pursued Israel to the edge of the Red Sea, you had a powerless people trapped between a powerful army and a mighty sea. They were helpless. They appeared to be easy prey, like taking advantage of the poor or the weak. Or today, the phrase that we would use is like taking candy from a baby. It, it looks to be easy. This people, they are not a warrior. People, they are not an army. We have an army. And there's a sea behind it. They have nowhere to go. And yet, verse 15, this powerless people have a powerful God who parted the sea for his people and crushed an army. He knew what he was doing. Remember God's work in the past. Remember who he is and what he has done. Notice how Habakkuk responds now in verse 16. He waits for God's work in the future. As you come to verse 16, Habakkuk's circumstances have not changed. He's seen who God is. He's remembered what God has done in the past. He submits to what God is doing in the present, even though he doesn't understand it. And as you come to verse 16, his circumstances have not changed. Babylon is still on the march. They are still a terrible army, and they are still going to conquer Israel as God commanded. And they are still going to be carried off into captivity. His circumstances have not changed. And, and, and honestly, in verse 16, he is terrified. Notice what he says, when I heard, when I heard what you've said, your, your pronouncement of judgment against your people, my body trembled. My lips quivered at this voice. Rottenness entered my bones. It feels like I am decaying and I trembled in myself. Habakkuk is, is terrified here. He's honest with us. I know that Babylon is coming. I know what's going to happen. And I am overwhelmed and terrified by the prospect of a Babylonian captivity. 
Babylon is terrifying. They are a terrible enemy with great power. And, and, and this terrifies me. I am scared to death. But I will rest in the day of trouble. But I will rest. But I will wait. Habakkuk will rest by faith in God's sovereign faithfulness. I may not understand what you are doing, but I know who you are. And I know what you will do. And I will find hope not in my circumstances. I will find hope in who you are and what you are doing, regardless of if I understand it or not. I'm thankful for Habakkuk here in verse 16, that uh, his honesty. I think so often we assume as we look at our, our problems in life and we look at the Bible and the Bible says um, God is good, trust that. And we think, okay, the Bible says God's good, therefore I should be able to not struggle with this. God is good. I'm not going to be worried. And yet what do we find? We're still worried. We're still terrified. We're still overcome. Habakkuk is honest here. He is still overwhelmed with fear. His emotions are still running wild. He is terrified of what lies ahead. And yet he knows that he can overcome. Not by his own strength, but by faith in God. Because he knows what God will do. This gets back to what we saw in chapter 2, verse 4. The just will live by faith. It's not that the just necessarily understand what God is doing. The just will live by faith in God, trusting that he knows what he's doing. I don't have to know. Habakkuk is terrified, and yet, I will wait. I will wait. I will rest by faith in your sovereign faithfulness. How I feel and what I see does not change who God is. And because how I see and because how I feel does not change who God is, then what I see and how I feel does not change my responsibility. God is still God. And I will still live by faith. Regardless of my circumstances. He is terrified. But he rests. Why? Because I know that God will not abandon his people. Because I know that when he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Because I see the end of the story. I may not understand what God is doing in this moment, but I see the end. God has told me that he will judge them. He has told me that they will be toppled. He has told me that his people will come back to this land. That is where I will look. That is where I will find hope. Because his judgment is fierce. And it is just. And yet Habakkuk knows that in the morning his mercy will be sweet. He knows that he will faithfully deliver and restore his people because he is a faithful God. So as you come to the end of these verses, Habakkuk has moved from questioning God in chapter 1 to here in chapter 3, praising him and proclaiming his hope in the Lord as he waits. His hope is not in his changing circumstances. His hope is in his unchanging, 
faithful, sovereign, good, powerful, just, merciful, gracious God. The hope for a powerless people is in a powerful God. So our way of application, number one, know your God. Know your God. He's given you his word. Dive into it. Study it. Know who your God is. Know what your God has promised. Know who he is and cling to those promises. Find hope in those promises. Because when your circumstances are constantly changing, your God does not change. Therefore, you can always find hope in that. Secondly, testify of your God. Is that not what Habakkuk does here in chapter 3? He looks back to what God has done in the past and he writes it in a psalm for all to see. This is who my God is. This is why I have hope, even in this circumstance, because this is who God is and this is what he's done. And because he's been faithful in the past, I know he'll be faithful in the present and in the future. People need to hear your testimony of God's faithfulness. Know who your God is and tell who your God is. Testify of his greatness. And then finally, wait on the Lord. Wait on him and wait patiently. Wait hopefully. Wait trustingly. Live by faith in a faithful God. Wait on him. Wait. Be faithful in the present because you know the end of the story. You know what happens. And your God does not change. That is your hope and who he is and what he's doing, not what you see and understand. Know your God, testify of your God, and wait on your God.